Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Katie Sweeney, who has served as chairman and CEO of the Association of Independent Mortgage Experts since 2020, but will be leaving that post at the end of March to lead the Broker Action Coalition. We'll be talking about what issues that advocacy group will be focused on and even the larger housing issues to pay attention to in this election year. First, I want to say thank you to our podcast sponsor, Truve, for making this episode possible. Katie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here, Sarah. We are really excited to have you. Uh, Big things going on with you and with AIM. So um, we're going to jump into all of that. But really first wanted uh, to give you a chance to kind of give us some background on, you know, you've been the CEO of AIM for several years now, kind of what your goals were, how you achieved those uh, before we jump into this next part of what you're doing for them. Yeah, absolutely. So um AIM, when I took over in the middle of 2020, I started as the interim CEO and then officially took over in January of 2021. So it's been a wild ride over the last three and a half to four years. Um, I was a part of the team prior to that and previously with Arrive. So I was always kind of in the broker circle or I have been since 2017 or 18. Um, But this role with AIM has been very different. It's been a great opportunity to get to not only understand what the challenges are in operating the wholesale space, but also what the opportunities look like and how consumers are truly served and what that means and what impact it can have, not only on people buying homes, but on the housing industry overall. So um, there've been some some difficult times, there've been some great times, but I think all in all, I'm really happy with where things ended. Um, when AIM started, it started as a Facebook group. And I think a lot of people forget that AIM isn't very old. Um, That Facebook group started in 2017, I think. And so um, the group came together because they rallied around this singular cause and then realized there was a lot more benefit to hanging out with each other and networking and sharing secrets and tips and tricks and all the things that make it easier to operate an independent business. And then it went from a couple hundred people to a couple thousand to 60,000 plus where it's at today. Um, When I started, I think that group had... 3,000, 3,500 people in it. We're over 16,000 people now that we get to interact with on a daily basis. Um, Another 45,000 or so that we work with online through email, through phone calls, different types of membership engagement at our events throughout the year. So it's been, it's been a lot. It's been great though. We've seen a lot of growth. We've seen a lot of diversification of what our membership looks like. Um, And I think that's probably the part that I'm the most proud of. That is really interesting. So, you know, as part of uh, being CEO in 2022, you you launched Broker Action Coalition, right? Which is your advocacy group, AIMS advocacy group for brokers. And now you're stepping into that full time, stepping away from CEO so that you can devote full time. So tell me why you thought that was necessary. Why is now the time to do that? Yeah. So the Broker Action Coalition was always set up as a separate entity. So I think that's one of the things we want to, Brendan and I want to make sure people are really clear on. Um, We started dipping our toes into the advocacy space in a serious manner in 2022. Um, Prior to that, AIM as an association really didn't have an advocacy presence. We had a lobbyist that we were paying for, but there was no active engagement in DC. We weren't really working on anything specifically. And so 
when I brought Brendan on board in 2021, we said, okay, let's give this six to nine months. Let's calm the waters a little bit because anybody who was around in 2020 and 2021 remembers it was a tumultuous time for the industry, but also for the association. And so um, Brendan came on board. We really started to make sure that the foundation was steady. Um, and then going into 2022, the idea was always for him to spend his focus and his volunteer time on trying to figure out if brokers were interested in getting engaged in advocacy again. There really hasn't been a strong presence in D.C. specific to the wholesale channel since before the crash. Um, things really kind of dissipated after 2008, 9, 10, as far as having a broker voice involved in the conversation. Um, and so we started kind of feeling it out, trying to see if people would be excited about it. We launched the pack and we really we had a hundred thousand dollar fundraising goal for our pack. Um, and we said, OK, this is really going to tell us, are people willing to put their money where their mouth is? They're telling us they love advocacy and they're telling us that they like it. Are they really going to step forward and help contribute? Um, and in less than 48 hours, we raised over $350,000 for the pack. It was incredible. Um, it was one of the most successful pack launches, at least according to our lobbyists in D.C., um, especially being funded by a bunch of independent small businesses. It's not it's not a bunch of corporate donations that came in and helped drive that dollar amount up. We have a $5,000 limit on a, a donation from a single person. So we can't just take money from sponsors or lenders. We have to have the community contributing to make sure that pack stays successful. Um, and it was way more than we could have ever imagined. And so rolling into 2023, Brendan really started devoting all of his time to the work we were doing in D.C. I started spending about a week, a month up there. Um, but we always operated it as a separate entity. So there's separate bylaws, separate board of directors, all of that that sits outside of the umbrella of AIM. Um, but while we were with AIM, the decision was, this is the advocacy work that we're going to be doing, and it benefits AIM members, so we're going to keep pushing it forward. Um, and while it still benefits AIM members, it also benefits all other brokers that aren't members of AIM. And so um, going into an election year and also understanding there's some critical legislation that we're trying to get passed, and it has to get done before the end of this calendar year, unless we want to start back over and start from scratch at the beginning of 2025. This felt like the right time for us to say, putting 100% of our focus and time on the advocacy work, on building up this, this entity so that we can be looked at like an institution in D.C., um, because brokers don't have that right now. Um, the NBA does a wonderful job advocating on behalf of the housing industry as a whole, but there's... Um, there's not really a membership model within the MBA that supports small businesses. Um, it's really built for entities that are a little bit larger and structured a little bit differently. And so we want to make sure we have an avenue for that for brokers, but we also want to make sure that we have an avenue for the consumer voice, because um, that's really who our members um, and our advocates represent. They work with consumers every single day. We're the only advocacy group you're going to find in D.C. in the housing space where our advocates work ex directly with the people that we're trying to make things better for on a daily basis. Um, and this just seemed like it seemed like the right time to do it. The election year, all of the things kind of coming together, um, some funding that came together that we're really, really grateful for, and the opportunity to launch a board um, full of advisors that we're really excited about and expand the kinds of people who can be on the board. Um, so all of those things together, I think, were, were the contributing factors.
It's a really strong signal um, that you got that much funding in such a short amount of time. And really, you know, like you said, critical to success because it's one thing to think, oh, this is going to be great. But if you don't have buy-in, a pack itself, I mean, it's it's all about like, are people willing to give their money and time to do this? If they're not, they're, it, you can't really do it from a top-down approach. Exactly. So let's talk about the board. Um, who do you have on the board? You just recently, I think it was last week, you just announced who who that is. Yes. Yeah. We're, we are so excited. We've got eight board members and then three additional advisors and then four additional kind of special appointees to the board. So the eight board members themselves, we have four representatives from the industry side and four representatives from the broker side. Um, And it was really important to us, the composition of this board. Uh, We want to make sure everybody can look at that board and say, Someone up there represents me, how I run my business, who I am as a person, the things that I care about. So we really focused on trying to find the most diverse group of people possible um, from a variety of areas, whether that's industry experience, your current role in the industry, gender, race, age, how long you've been in the mortgage space, the things that you care about, what your background was before you got into it. Um, We consider all of those things when trying to put this board together. So on the industry side, we have Chris Vincent. Um, who's the CEO over at Windsor. Um, Windsor is a fantastic company. They're doing a lot for the broker space. They're also willing to innovate, which is something that's really important to us. Um, We look at advocacy in multiple verticals. We don't just look at it as legislation. Um, We look at it as legislation, um, regulatory and agency relationships, and then industry accountability and innovation. And the industry accountability and innovation space is the area where our industry board members really shine. So we have Chris Vincent, we have Kevin Peranio from PRMG, the chief lending officer over there, um, Eddie Perez from EPM, who um, many people on here will know and the MBA is very familiar with, and then Phil Shoemaker from the Loan Store. Um, all of those people have helped contribute over the last couple of years with their time, their expertise, their guidance on our current um, advocacy initiatives. Um, I worked with each of them on letters that we've drafted and position statements that we've written to say, What are we missing? Did we consider everything that the industry is going to care about beyond just what brokers are going to care about? And are these proposals and solutions reasonable and realistic? And how do we move them forward? We want to be able to make sure that we're putting solutions out there that actually have a chance of getting done. Um, And these four people have really helped make sure that we've carved out exactly what our, our stance is going to look like. On the broker side, We have Major Singleton. He's a loan originator from Edge Home Finance. He's a top producer in the country. He's also um, a veteran. He served in the military for over 20 years, I think. He's very decorated um, and also just a very respectable, very reputable person. Um, We have Elena Boland um, from out in Nevada. She's a broker owner out there. Um, I believe over 80%, it might even be 90% of her company is women. Um, And they're really kind of shaking up what it means to be a female leader in not just the broker space, but the housing space in general. Um, Both of those people I respect immensely and have for quite some time. Um, We have Danny Iskander from West Capital. Um, They are one of the largest brokerages in the country from Southern California. And then we have... Joe Dion um, from Apley Home Loans down in Florida. Um, Joe has been a part of our state captain program. He's helped push a lot of state legislation forward in Florida over the last year. Um, so we're really looking at representing big companies, small local companies, regional companies, loan officers, broker owners, people with correspondent lending experience, people who've been just brokers. Um, those four kind of cover the gamut there. And then Brendan and myself. Um, 
our special advisors are Brian View from Binlocker, Sam Parker from My Credit Guy, um, and then Sophia Rosado from Flowify. Um, and then we have four leadership councils that are led by broker owners um, or brokers. And the Black Homeownership Leadership Council is led by Whitley Cooper. So she will serve as a special appointee to the board. Gay Veal is leading our Veteran Homeownership Leadership Council. Um, Amaret Hernandez is leading our Hispanic Homeownership Leadership Council. And then Jerry Robinson is leading our government affairs, so all of our federal legislation. And we are working on finalizing our state leadership as we speak. So that's a mouthful. There's a lot of them, um, but they all bring something different to the table. They all have fantastic reputations in, in this space, and they're all very excited about contributing to making things better for brokers, for consumers, and for the industry as a whole. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, you mentioned the MBA. Um, and so, you know, when I think about housing advocates, it's it's the MBA, but it's also NAR, it's um, NAMBA, it's NAREP, it's uh, National Association of Home Builders. There's quite a few people already in the space talking about housing and advocating for housing. So in your mind, what are the issues that really stand out that none of them could really represent brokers on or the people brokers help? Uh, you know, like what distinguishes what you guys will be doing on the advocacy front? I think the difference is not necessarily going to be in the legislation, because I will say we've already served on multiple coalitions with the MBA. We've worked with NAR on some specific state issues that have popped up. We're starting to get to work with NAHB down in Mississippi and a couple of other states that we're working on a relationship with them. So I think it's less about the legislation itself and more about the perspective that we can provide to make sure the right people are paying attention. Um, all of those groups that you listed off are institutions and everyone in D.C. respects them. Everyone in D.C. is willing to listen to them. Um, but sometimes there's not the consumer presence involved in the conversation. And one of the benefits of the Broker Action Coalition at the back, as we like to call it, um, is that we're not a membership group. Um, part of the reason it was important for us to make the, the distinction very clear between AIM and the BAC and what the BAC is going to be going forward is that um, you can't be a member. You can be an advocate and you can participate in our work um, just like you would with um, MAA, with the MBA, with the Mortgage Action Alliance. But we're not a membership group. Um, and that's very purposeful. Um, not that we don't represent people who would be members, but we want to make sure the conversation stays central to what do consumers need and how does the consumer conversation impact the rest of the housing space? I think all of those groups that you listed off are very well educated in what the industry needs and how the industry itself runs and what makes the clock kind of tick, um, but sometimes are not as directly connected to the people that are buying homes or the people who are struggling to stay in their homes. Um, and that's really the void that I think we're looking to fill. So we mentioned at the beginning, Brokers are the ones that work directly with home buyers every single day. You don't have all of these layers of disconnect where by the time you get to executive leadership, you're 10 steps removed from the buyer themselves. 
Um, Brendan takes phone calls with consumers in between our meetings in the hallway. We had Elizabeth Cassidy and Ashley Bedford, two brokers out in D.C. with us from Florida, um, and they were on the phone or texting in between meetings, making sure that their closings were going to go through. We get to take that perspective and those experiences directly from the buyer and bring them into the conversation. And I think that's something that the housing industry as a whole has been missing for quite some time. Um, I think those institutions and those associations do a great job representing their association and the members in that association, but those members are lending companies um, or those, those members are real estate agents. Those members aren't consumers. Um, and we get to help kind of fill that void and serve as the conduit between the people who are actually trying to buy the house and the struggles that they're facing and what they need to make it better and how we can impact specific communities and the lending groups and the larger housing trade organizations that have the ability to make it better. So what are some of the issues that are uh, top of mind for back right now? Well, trigger leads is the thing that everyone wants to talk about all the time. Um, that is something we've been working on for well over a year. Um, we're really excited with the progress that we've seen. Um, it got a little dicey there with multiple bills introduced by different people and how that was all going to work out. But we were able to work directly with those offices and get those two groups combined together. So now we have bipartisan legislation in the House. We've had bipartisan legislation introduced in the Senate since it was dropped in December, I believe. Um, and so that's going to be the number one priority for the time being. And and explain a little bit about that. If, if I'm a listener out there and I'm like, yes. okay, well, what is that legislation? How is that going to affect me? What does that look like? Perfect. So um, where we've landed, because it's gone through an evolution. So we'll just talk about kind of where we ended. You, we could do a whole podcast on how we got to this point with trigger leads. Um, but the end, the legislation that we're we're promoting and pushing right now that everyone seems to be behind, both the industry groups, including MBA that we've been working on this with, also the consumer advocacy groups, and now both the House and the Senate. Um, it essentially would eliminate trigger leads with a couple of really important exceptions. Um, one of them being if you're the servicer, um, so you already have the consumer's information, it's important for a servicer to be able to contact any customer that's in their portfolio, um, because if they can't, the asset devalues. Um, it's just not as valuable if they don't have the opportunity to retain that client long term. Um, so that's included. Servicers can still contact their current customers, um, loan officers that originated their current mortgage. So not a loan officer that originated the mortgage from five houses ago. The loan officer on their current mortgage could still facilitate um, and use these credit triggers if they wanted to. Um, and the lending institution on their current mortgage would still be able to contact them. So um, those are the three most important exceptions. And we started with a piece of legislation that was far more restrictive than that. And, and we understand there are probably a lot of loan officers listening or even real estate agents that are like, why even let three people? There shouldn't be anybody. Um, but it is an important part of the way that the industry works. And if assets become devalued, those costs just, they get passed on to the consumer up front. It becomes more expensive to originate a loan, which means it gets more expensive to buy a home. Um, and obviously making things more expensive for consumers up front is not something we need right now in this market. We're already in uh, an affordability crisis of sorts in many areas of the country. So, um, that legislation is essentially identical in both the House and the Senate, and we've got Democrats and Republicans on both bills in each chamber. So we're in as good of a spot as we could be to try to get this legislation passed before the end of the year. We've got a handful of other key people that we want to get on as sponsors, um, and then we're, we believe it will be referred to the Committee of Jurisdiction for an initial review and markup um, probably within the next couple of months is the goal, which means 
there is a chance that we can, a very good chance that we can get it passed before the end of the year. That's amazing. Yeah. And you know, trigger leads. I, so I uh, close on a house tomorrow, so I'm super excited. Uh, so just went through this process myself yes. and we all know that this can be a uh, uh, pretty, pretty rough on the consumer. Uh, once they get that credit bull, it just is like inundation. And confusing, yes. right? Like it's one thing, the nuisance is one thing. And so for people like you or me that are a little bit more familiar about what to expect, I bought my house, which is why it's still white walls everywhere a few months ago. And when I initially went through that process in the fall, I, I showed Brenda and I was in DC at 2000 phone calls, text messages, voicemails, ringless voicemails in less than three days. It got to the point where I had to put my phone on do not disturb because it was freezing because there were so many people trying to call at the same time. Um, it's annoying at at minimum, but when you have people who are first time home buyers or first generation homeowners or people who are a little bit older or English is not their first language, it becomes a, a barrier to entry because they get so overwhelmed and they don't know what's going on that they don't even want to be a part of the process anymore. And you're, you're cutting people out of moving forward. You're confusing people, the deceptive language. We've had a lot of people push back and say, well, why not just regulate deceptive language more? And then that would take care of the problem. There's already laws against speaking to people the way that these messages and these phone calls go out. And it doesn't matter. It's not a deterrent because the fines aren't big enough to make a difference. There are companies out there that have said, we don't care if we get caught because we'll pay the fine. We will make more money on the customers that we can get than we will have to pay on whatever fine we might pay if we do get caught. So we don't care. So that exists and it's not working. And so the next step is we just need to eliminate access altogether. We, I, I like to use this example. When you walk into your doctor's office and you get a health check, you don't expect to get solicited over the next couple of weeks from all these other doctors and pharmaceutical companies selling you things after you just met with your doctor who you trust. And now you're sitting there going, well, wait a second, do I need these things? Why didn't my doctor tell me about this? Should I be looking at something else? When oftentimes their goal is just to sell to you based off of a set of data that they collected on your physical health. Well, let's take that same idea and apply it to your financial health. Why would somebody be able to buy information about your finances without your consent and sell you something that you didn't ask for just to confuse you and to deter you from working with your original loan officer, who is your trusted financial advisor in a, a, a transaction to purchase a home? So it's, a, it's very important that everybody get behind this. The entire industry is supporting this. This is the best chance. Trigger leads have been a conversation for probably six years. This is the closest we've ever been to actually getting legislation passed and getting this whole practice cleaned up. And I think it's something that everyone easily understands. There's a lot of things we're, you know, that you guys are probably advocating for that are pretty in the weeds. This one's just really yes. high level. The consumers understand it. The lawmakers understand it. Everyone understands why this is a problem. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. 
Let's talk about one of those other ones. So uh, third-party TPO surcharge, that's that's one thing you guys are looking at, right? Yeah. So that's where we split into our regulatory vertical. Um, we were hoping legislation was going to be what would help resolve that. We've done some more digging and it doesn't look like that's going to be the best path forward. Um, essentially, right now, every loan originated by any TPO company. So basically anybody who's not a direct seller to Fannie and Freddie, which doesn't just include brokered loans. That also includes small regional banks, small regional retail lenders, credit unions, anybody who doesn't have a big enough portfolio to be able to sell direct to Fannie and Freddie is essentially being taxed. Um, the fee changes depending on if it went to Fannie or Freddie and what kind of loan it was, but it essentially averages out to about 15 basis points on every single loan. And over the course of the last two to two and a half years, we're talking about billions of dollars that have been collected by FHFA as a risk fee. It was a, implemented as a risk assessment. Um, we've asked them some questions. We've tried to get a better understanding of exactly where it came from because it didn't just start in 2020, um, but that's when it was implemented. So the risk study went back years and years before that. But we've done a similar risk study, um, and we don't see the same data that they're claiming to have found. Um, and so now it's a little bit of a finger pointing game. FHFA is saying, well, we don't tell Fannie and Freddie what to do. We just give them recommendations and tell them this is what they have to collect. Fannie and Freddie are saying, no, no, they've said they're riskier. So this is the fee that we're going to collect every single time. Um, and it's it's kind of like that Spider-Man meme where everyone's wearing the same thing, but pointing back at the other person. And you're trying to figure out who the right group to actually talk with is. Um, but what I can tell you is that that doesn't change in um, political cycles. So whether it's this year, next year, two years from now, it doesn't matter. Unlike legislation where you have a two-year window to get it passed until you have to start over again, with regulatory relationships, those don't change. Obviously, they could shift if there's a change in power in the White House, um, but the actual concept stays the same. And so we're going to keep pushing forward on that. That's one of our biggest priorities. It costs consumers billions and billions of dollars because that's who it's getting passed on to. Um, the lending companies aren't eating that fee to sell these loans. Consumers are the ones who are paying for it. And when the FHFA's stated mission is to get more people into homes and to help improve affordable housing, you're not doing that with this. And we've also found these loans, when you look at 60 and 90 day delinquencies and foreclosures, they are almost identical risk ratios to retail loans originated between 2018 and 2022. So one of our goals is to expand the risk study that we've done, go back to the early 2010s and see if we can get another five to 10 year window to look at where this misconception really started and how we can combat it. But we know that we can show multiple years of trends where the loans perform basically the same. Um, and if you look at and this is where it gets interesting, Sarah. If you look at the types of consumers that brokers work with, they tend to be much more diverse. You're talking about many more first-time home buyers, um, people from Black and Hispanic communities at a much higher ratio. When you go to minority dense populations, broker originations go up by 100%. They double. Volume doubles for brokers in minority populations. For retail, it goes down by about 17% in those same communities. So there's a much stronger presence of, of wholesale originators than there are retail originators in these spaces. These are the communities that FHFA wants to help. These are the people they want to get into homes. And those are the consumers that are now being taxed. So you are now telling us because you want to tax TPO loans that 
Black, Hispanic, first-time homebuyers, first-generation homebuyers, all of those people that work at a much higher percentage with brokers than they do with retail originators are the ones that have to pay an extra fee to even be able to get into their home in the first place. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't align with the stated objective of FHFA. So we're, that, that's a big one for us too. It is interesting. It's something, so we have um, we have contributors who have written op-eds on our pages, right, about this very issue and specifically about are loans originated by any IMBs or, you know, brokers riskier than other kinds of loans? And, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence that they would say there isn't. I mean, they're, they're, it's not riskier. And to your point, it's like, if you think about the government really wanting to make sure that depositories are, you know, um, doing their CRA work, that they are working in those communities. It's funny to think that like, we have a, we have a group of people who are working with those buyers, um, even if they don't have, you know, a depository. And so it is, it is interesting. So that will be one that we'll, we'll be watching for sure. Um, you brought up the election and the differences in an election year between, you know, legislation, regulation, all that stuff. So we've been doing a bunch of events this, uh, over the last two, three months, and it's on everyone's mind. What, how is housing going to change depending on this election cycle? So I would, I would, I would pose that to you. What do you see um, on the line either way, um, depending on, on which, who's in the White House? So one of the benefits I will say to housing and particularly to the things that matter to our group, um, it's bipartisan, right? So it doesn't really matter if there's a Democrat or Republican in the White House, who controls the House, who controls the Senate. What we care about is going to always be important to anybody that's in an elected role. How we present those conversations may change and the things that we focus on and what we talk about. Um, but at the end of the day, it's the same goal, same objective, and it's always going to matter. It is one of the great benefits that we have as housing advocates. Our topic is always important. There are lots of trade groups that exist in D.C., what they care about only matters if a specific party is in power, because if the other's in power, the things that they want are never going to move forward. We don't have that challenge, which is great. Um, some of the things, though, that we're already starting to look at are, are the people in leadership roles on financial services and how that's going to shift. Um, Congressman, uh, Chairman Patrick McHenry has already stated he's not planning on running again, um, and he'll be stepping down at the end of his term. And so he is the most important person on financial services for housing right now in the House. Um, and so we already know he's going to change no matter what, whether it's a Democrat or Republican that wins the election in the White House, he's not going to be in that role. And so if it's a new Republican stepping in or if there is a shift in power, um, we're going to have to forge new relationships no matter what. We've already started doing that. Um, but I, I think we're really we're in a really unique position in that um it doesn't really matter who wins. And I'm we we take a very clear stance. We are not getting involved in politics outside of housing. We care about what people care about housing and what they do with the rest of their time and how they vote on other issues is not really our concern. Um, and I'm not a gambler, so I'm not even going to try and guess who's going to win this election. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm not interested in, in making any assumptions or our guesstimates. We give from our pack in a very equal manner. We make sure both parties are funded and that we're supporting them. We work with both Democrats and Republicans in the House and the Senate right now. Um, if you kind of flash back to 2008, before that election took place, um, one of the issues that brokers had is that the, the money that was raised for their pack was all given to one party. And then that party didn't win. And so when you had all these new people take over, um, 
it does matter if you tried to fund their competitor and if you um, didn't give to their campaign and you gave to somebody else. And it really made trying to represent wholesale in all of those conversations post crash really challenging because the party they supported wasn't the party that was in power. Um, and so it's always been very important to us that we support both groups, um, regardless of our personal political beliefs. It does not matter. Um, Brendan and I have always taken the approach that we give equally. We support both parties as much as we possibly can. Um, we have ratios that we give that we've learned from some of the best in D.C. on how they manage what they're giving and their funding schedule actually looks like. But um, I think the world is in for an interesting election. Um, I don't, I truly don't know how much the election itself is going to impact housing policy. I think the bigger impact is going to be who takes over as the chairman or chairwoman on financial services. Um, that's really where they set the agenda for the year. They decide what they care about. They decide what's important. They decide what they even review or look at or what gets referred to the committee of jurisdiction. Um, that person is the most important for us in the house. Um, and that person we already know is going to change. So um, trying to get ahead of making and building as many relationships as we can with other potential leaders who are throwing their hat in the ring for that role going forward. Yeah. And that, you know, that is just the way the inside baseball works in DC. You have to have that strategy and it's it to your point, if you only support one party for whatever reason, like you're really shooting yourself in the foot and not just, you know, at that high level, but all the way down the ticket. Right. So if you have someone come into the white house, normally, you know, there is some reaction there all the way down the ticket on, on people who are up for reelection and uh, both, both uh, chambers. So it's just, it's complicated. I know that, uh, Happy to have so many advocates uh, from different organizations for housing, uh, which is which affects so many people's lives. I mean, it affects so much of of America and Americans, what they do with their money, how they grow wealth, the opportunities they have. So um, we'll be we'll be checking back in with you as the year goes on to see what's going on. But Katie, thank you so much for stopping by. Great to uh, get to talk to you about back and, and what you guys have planned. Thank you so much, Sarah. It was great. We'll definitely do this again. Thank you for listening and thank you to our sponsor, Truve. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment and make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.